Welcome to another episode of Bereans Podcast. Each week we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real life change and that the power of the gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. church family. I trust that you're doing well today. I want to say welcome to those of you who are here in person. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. You know, I'm very grateful after a season away here from from the pulpit, from speaking on Sunday, that we have so many gifted pastors who are able to open God's Word and point our hearts to Christ. Isn't that a blessing? But I would be lying if I said I didn't miss it. So what I have done is I've sought to prepare the world's greatest sermon. (laughs) And I'm still working on it, but one of these days I'm going to unleash it. We'll see. But it's great to be back with you. I was reading this week about what's called the Diderot effect. You see, the famous French philosopher Denis Diderot, despite writing one of the world's most influential and comprehensive encyclopedias of the day, despite being a household name, had a problem. And the problem was this. He was dirt poor. And in 1765, at the age of 52, he got some good news that had some bad news. The good news was that his daughter was being married. The bad news was that he couldn't afford the dowry. Now, I didn't even know that a dowry was a thing. And I think personally, my father-in-law owes me. (laughs) So maybe I'll have a conversation with him It's worked out pretty well in my favor, I have to say. Maybe I owe him. But Diderot had this problem. His wife was about to be, his daughter was about to be married, and he could not afford the dowry. And so Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia, heard about his plight, and she offered to buy his personal library off of him for the sum of 1,000 pounds, which was somewhere around dollars $75,000 in today's money. So he agreed, and it seemed as if his problems were solved. He could now afford the dowry. But he decided to do one simple feat, one simple thing, to treat himself. So he bought himself a scarlet robe. I mean, he had worked hard. He was an esteemed academic and philosopher. He deserved this, after all. So he bought himself a very beautiful scarlet robe. But then it got worse because... He had this beautiful robe that didn't quite fit with the rest of his possessions. As he looked around his home after sitting in his robe, he said these words, there was no more coordination, there was no more unity, there was no more beauty. And so he replaced his old rug with a fine rug from Damascus. He 
felt the urge to accessorize, and so he decorated his home with beautiful sculptures and a new kitchen table. He bought a new mirror to place above the mantle. He replaced his straw chairs with the fancy leather chairs, just to really pull it all together until he got to the point that he was, yet again, broke. The Diderot effect. The movement and the energy of purchasing often leads to purchasing more. You buy a new boat, and so you need new life jackets, you need a new paddle, you need a new motor because it's a used boat and you should have checked better and had a mechanic look at it. It turns out the motor was a dud, so you got to get a new motor and you want to get some, you know, some extras with it. Purchases that keep going. Maybe it's buying a new dress and you look great in the dress until you look at the full-length mirror and you say, these shoes simply do not go. I can't go out looking like this. So you buy yourself a new pair of shoes to go with a new dress. Maybe you buy your kids a Nintendo Switch. And you're like, okay, well, they got the Switch, and now we need a travel uh, pack, and now we need a case for it. Now we need about 17 controllers because they're always getting broken or lost or something. It just keeps moving and moving. The Diderot effect is everywhere. We all experience it. And unfortunately, sometimes we experience it in essence in our spiritual lives. You see, we come to faith, we believe in the gospel, we believe in Christ, that he has died on the cross for our sins, that he has raised for our life, and that we are secure in him, united to him, and so we have a home in heaven. And you, you understand this truth, and you sing, and you worship, and you have this joy, and then the years start to tick by. And slowly but surely, you begin to, I don't know, lose your first love. And so you go looking for more. Maybe it's some kind of speculative, controversial aspect of theology, and you pour all of your time and attention into that. Maybe it's in the realm of politics, and you dive headlong into that, and you are, you are all about that, but you think that you need more. But here's the truth. You don't need more than the gospel. You need more of the gospel. You know, I love to study theology. The relationship between God's sovereignty and human choice. About eschatology, the end times. How is God going to wrap this all up and land this plane? Of church structures and procedures. I love studying Greek and to a much lesser degree Hebrew during years in college. But the longer that I've followed Jesus, and the more that I've studied the Bible, I see that the biggest mistake that old Christians, and I'm not talking here about your age, I'm talking about those of you who have walked with Christ for years, maybe even decades, it's thinking that somehow we need something else, something more, when really what we need is to get deeper in our understanding, our amazement, our awe at who Jesus is and what he has done. You don't move on from that. And so today, in this series called A Few of My Favorite Things, I want to take you to one Bible verse out of the book of Galatians, where Paul explains how we go deeper in the gospel and how that affects and impacts our everyday You see, I'm talking about the need to be focused and centered and living out of the gospel, to be centered on Christ and what he's done for us at the cross. 
You don't need more than the gospel. You need more of the gospel. No, I'm not, church, I'm not talking here about you just need the ABCs and then, then there's no more, uh, you know, contribution that your mind and your faculties make in the pursuit of Christ. That you just show up to church and it's the exact same message every single week. No, but I am talking about this, allowing your desires, your addictions, your struggles, your hardships, your pain, your loneliness, your anxiety, your fear, be viewed through the lens of the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for you. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to put the words on the screen. Now I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read this passage. Now let me give you a little bit of background or context here because oftentimes at Brian, when we walk through books of when we walk through sermon series, we are actually walking through books of the Bible. And for a series such as this, and a sermon such as this, I'm looking at one Bible verse. And I want to give you a little bit of the background. Because this book is a, again, beautiful and profound book that has incredible relevance for us today. You can read it in one sitting. It is called the book of Galatians. It's a letter written by Paul to the churches in a region called Galatia, hence the name Galatians. And so it's one of the, perhaps not if the first book of the New Testament that was written, written in about 45 AD. And here Paul is writing to counteract a dangerous heresy because there were people who were adding to the gospel. And Paul is going to have none of that. This heresy that this church was facing is a common error that is found today. Now, I know some of you are like, he's got us to stand, and he hasn't even read the Bible verse yet. He's still <laughs> preaching sermons. Listen, I've seen you stand for three to six minutes for a song. Okay? You can handle this, trust me. And if you need to sit down and stretch your legs, I'm not going to judge you. But this error that Paul was, was counteracting, teaching against, is, is an error that exists today. You see, people in this region were saying, hey, Jesus, that's great. The cross and all that kind of stuff, that's really good stuff. But you know what would be even better? If we had Jesus and the cross and all that stuff, and then we added in keeping the Old Testament law. That way, you have the best of both worlds. It's a works-based righteousness. Do you recognize how prevalent that air is today? You see, on the one hand, you have churches that are extremely conservative and fundamentalist, where they mark everything, your spirituality, based on the externals. So yeah, the Jesus stuff is good and all that, but how do you know that you're right with God? Well, if you're a man, you better not have long hair. And that's why I keep it short. I don't, I don't want to be a stumbling block to any of you. Right? Say, okay, man's got to have long hair, woman's got to have a long dress. You can't play cards, you can't dance, you can't uh, mow your lawn on a Sunday. <clears throat> more and more rules and regulations. I saw this guy recently on YouTube, this pastor that was railing, and he was getting amens from people in the audience about how sinful beards were. And I'm like, I didn't even, I didn't even know that was sinful. Or where you would even get that from. I think it's just beard envy, personally. 
But you have this in the conservative fundamentalist side of things where it's like, it's all these extra rules and regulations that mark you off as a good Christian. How do you know you're acceptable to God? Well, you keep all these rules. But on the other end of the spectrum, on the, on the more liberal or progressive end, there's a workspace righteousness there as well. How do you know you're accepted by God? Well, how affirming are you? How uh, environmentally or ecologically sensitive are you? Does your church have solar panels? It doesn't matter how many people you feed in a soup kitchen. That is not what justifies you in the eyes of God. It doesn't matter how many rules you follow. That is not what justifies you in the eyes of God. The gospel ignores both of these wrong teachings and comes to us as a new way that says you are not made righteous by your works. You're made righteous by the work of Christ. And so this is the heart of what Paul is getting at here. And so with that, let me read the verse. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Church, I want us to read this out loud together. Would you do that with me? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. You can be seated. Some of you are like, I'm not even going to wait for permission. I'm sitting down. What I want to do today under that heading that we don't need more than the gospel, we need more of the gospel, is walk through this profound verse line by line. And let's start where Paul starts. I have been crucified with Christ. The Apostle Paul lived and ministered after Jesus. And so by the time that Paul meets Jesus, Jesus has already been born, lived, died on the cross, been buried in the tomb, been resurrected from the dead, and then ascended back into heaven. So Paul here is not talking in a literal sense. He was not one of the criminals crucified alongside of Christ. He was not there behind Jesus in any way. No, Paul here is talking metaphorically, but he's also speaking in a very real sense. It's more than just a metaphor. He is referencing here the mysterious, providential work of God. That when Christ was crucified on the cross, that the old self, the old part of you that was guilty before God, that was dead in your sins, that was a slave to unrighteousness, that part of him was crucified was put to death, was put to an end. Elsewhere in Romans 3, he says this, we know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 
Because anyone who, who has died has been set free from sin. When Jesus Christ was crucified, you, as a believer, were crucified with him, that old self. And what Paul is referencing here is this concept of our union with Christ. When you read through church history and you read the Puritans, the Reformers, and so forth, you will see that this concept of our union with Christ comes up time and time again. It comes up time and time again in their writings because it comes up time and time again in Scripture. That everything good that we long for, that we desire, everything good that comes to us from God's gracious hand, every spiritual blessing is ours because of our union with Christ. He is the conduit. It's all from him. And we are united with him in his crucifixion. What this means, practically speaking, is that you will never live a God-honoring, holy life. You will never put sin to death and love your neighbors well if you think that it's all about you mustering the fortitude to do such things. That's not how it works. In fact, if you are a believer and you have trusted in Christ Even though it seems at times that sin is inevitable, it's not. Now, I'm not talking here about some kind of perfectionism or somehow that as a Christian you can get to the point where you don't struggle. We will all struggle. But I am saying this, that because the old self is dead, because you are a new creation in Christ, that sinning is not inevitable. It doesn't matter your background, your experiences, your upbringing, your fears, your frustrations, the situations that you live in. It doesn't matter all the patterns of behavior that have been established and the neural pathways that you've established. It doesn't matter. You are not a slave to sin. And until you recognize that, you're operating out of a flawed identity. Because so often when the moment comes and we're facing temptation to slip back into the old habits, what do we feel like? Here we go again. You have been crucified with Christ. Live in that new life. Live out that new life. He says, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Since the old you is dead, the rebellious part of you that was guilty, what now? Smooth sailing, right? No. I've heard it said that sometimes we don't feel like we're dead to sin. Maybe we feel like we fainted once, but it doesn't feel like we're dead to sin often, does it? This is why you and I need to come again to the gospel. This says, I feel like this situation is hopeless. I feel like in these situations, I always respond this way. I feel like I always lose my cool. I always sin in this way. I always give in to fear. I always end up being selfish. But no, listen to me. The old you is crucified. You don't have to listen to the voice of the old self. It is Christ 
that lives in you. You are united to him in his death and, church, you are united to him in his life. It's all based on our union with Christ. You died with him and you live with him. I was reading this week about a guy named Benjamin Shriver who currently resides in the Iowa penitentiary system. He was convicted of murder and received a sentence of life without parole. But he found himself a loophole, he thought. While in prison, he got sick, flatlined, and died. He died five times on the table, and the doctors there resuscitated him. So in conversations with his lawyer, he made a novel legal case that because he died and was resuscitated, he had thus fulfilled the requirements of his sentence. The district court judge wasn't convinced. He found them, and I quote, unpersuasive and without merit. The fact that Schreiber was able to file a legal motion petitioning for his release, the judge added, in itself confirms that the petitioner's current status as living. You see, dying for a brief moment doesn't give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. But if you have trusted in Christ, you have truly died with him. And what this means is that for those who have trusted in Jesus, you are free from judgment. The punishment that you and I deserve was fully met and poured out on Christ. And that means that as a believer, I am innocent, justified, because my debt has been paid. This is one of the central tensions that we as humans wrestle with. How can a holy perfect, majestic God be in relationship with broken and sinful people like you and me. Maybe you're here and you instantly roll your eyes because you're like, oh my goodness, this Bible thumper is on here about sin and all that stuff. And maybe you don't believe in it. And you would say, listen, I just reject all of that. Sin is serious. Do you want to know why? First of all, because the Bible is clear. Secondly, because your end will be clear if you are unrepentant in your sin. And Scripture is explicit that the end of sin is death. And that is death in this life, but also eternal death in a place of literal fire and torment called hell. But you know how else I know that sin is real? And sin is serious because other people's sin bothers you. Doesn't it? Maybe you're here and you're like, I don't, I don't believe in that stuff. And How do you feel about people who vote diametrically opposed to you? People who have radically different social and political views than you. Are you kind and loving and tolerant and respectful of them? Or does their, in your eyes, sin really bother you? Do their erroneous views really bother you? Of course they do. Sin is serious. It's serious to you, and it's serious to God. So how can a holy, righteous, majestic God be in relationship with sinful humanity? Well, one option, I guess, would be God could just ignore it. Right? 
Just like grandma being like, I know mom said no more sweets and treaties, but here you go, little one. I just can't help it. Right? He tussles your hair a little bit and says, on with you. I'll look the other way again. You don't want a God that does that. You don't want a judge who just simply lets people off. That is called corruption. Imagine a judge looking at somebody who is a violent, evil, repeat offender and saying to them, well, you're not as bad as somebody that I saw last month, so you're free to go. We would demand that they be disbarred or whatnot. No, we don't want a God that will simply ignore it and let evil and injustice perpetuate and flourish forever and grow. No, we want a God that will bring justice. We just don't want a God who will bring justice to us. So he could ignore it and then become unjust. He could just crush us. That would be the other option. Sin demands judgment and he just pours out his full fury on our evil, on our sin, on our rebellion. How can God be both just and merciful? How can God be both just and the justifier? That is where we see our union with Christ come into play. You are guilty. The wages of sin is death. We have a collectively and individually rebelled against God in thought, in word, and in deed. We do it all the time. We do it without even thinking. We are guilty before God. We deserve death. But the good news of the gospel is that because of our union with Christ, that judgment has been poured out and met in full. Jesus Christ took your place. The old you was crucified there with him. You deserve, I deserve death because of my sins. I have rebelled against the holy God. And so the punishment has already been poured out. God does not ignore our sin, minimize it, or cover it up. He deals with it justly. So how can God be both just and the justifier? It's there in the gospel. It is there in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what we sing, what we celebrate, what we proclaim what those of us who follow Christ have these moments in maybe in worship or when we're with our friends rejoicing, when we're listening to good music, when we see the sunrise, where we just become overwhelmed at the goodness of God. And we say, I just wish I could carry that with me all the time because you walk out of this building, out of this spiritual high and Monday morning strikes. You leave here and you're faced again with your insecurities and inadequacies. You encounter again those areas of frustration, of fear, of anger, of, of lust. 
you walk out of here and you interact with just a bunch of really annoying people. That's life. What news, what impact does that good news, that gospel, have on your everyday? Paul is going to answer that question for us in the next part of this verse. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm united to him. But the life I now live in the flesh. That is your Monday morning. That is the daily grind. That is the human condition. That is the days and the weeks and the months and the years that are to come. The life that I now live in the flesh, in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God. The life you live when you're tired and your kids need you. When you've worked hard and put an extra effort and your boss is stealing all of the credit that is due for you. When you're alone and you're tempted. This is the life when you're discouraged and facing disappointment, when you don't want to serve or love or care. This is your everyday. How do you navigate through your everyday? How do you put this into practice? The life you now live in the body, the life you now live in the flesh, Paul says, listen, your day-to-day, all the grind, all the hardships that you walk through, I live by faith in the Son of God. He does not say here, the life, so I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I became a Christian. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by hard work and determination. That's not what he says, is it? He doesn't say, the life I now live in the flesh, I deal by controlling and manipulating my world. No, he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. You see, there is a faith that is necessary for salvation. It is impossible to please God without faith. So if you are here and you are trying to cobble together something to impress God, trying to justify yourself in your own eyes, it's impossible to please God that way. The only hope you have is to place your faith in Christ. There is a faith, a trust, a belief that is necessary for salvation, but there is a faith that is necessary and required for sanctification. That means spiritual growth and holiness. So many of us live our lives out of a deficit of faith. So in our day-to-day grind, we rely much more on our own abilities and strength and ingenuity than we do on faith. And Paul here says, listen, because of that gospel where you are crucified with Christ and united to him, now take that into your everyday and continue to live by faith. Keep going. Having begun in the gospel, are you now going to find another way? No, you stay focused and live your life by faith. And trust him. And if your heart is having a hard time in trusting, And you really feel like, you know what, if I could just 
take control of more of my life, if I could just do it in my own strength, if I... No, Paul is going to show us in this next part of the verse why we can walk by faith. Why we can live this life in the flesh by faith. Look at what he says. My faith, he says, is in the Son of God who, what? Loved me and gave himself for me. I want you to stop here. I want you to get this. And I want God's spirit to amaze you, to wow you, to ruin you in your pride and your self-reliance. I want God to crush your fears and your doubts by hearing these words. And I pray that God through his spirit will open your eyes to see the gravity and the glory of this. He loves you and gave himself for you. Kids, listen to me. He loved you and gave himself for you. There have been no greater words spoken in all of human history than these. He has loved you. He gave himself for you. The holy, magnificent, and glorious God. The one that if you saw with your mortal eyes would be too much. You would be consumed. The God who is a consuming fire, who dwells in unapproachable glory and light. The God who needs nothing, requires nothing, is entirely self-sufficient. Who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning to the end. The God who is all-powerful, who is eternal. That God loves you. I feel like in some ways this notion or this idea of God's love for us has been so poorly communicated over the past few years in churches or in the Christian movement. Because for many people, God's love, intense, his active, his purifying, his refining love has been communicated as nothing but a self-esteem boost for you. God just loves you because you're so awesome. God just loves you because you're so special. Look in the mirror every morning and tell yourself 10 times, God loves me. Subtext, I'm crushing it. No, this should not simply pump up your vanity. This is meant to focus you on something far greater than yourself. That God loves you. Not because you're so lovable but because of who he is. That despite your sin, my sin, despite your shortcomings, my shortcomings, and your fears and your insecurities and all the ways that you have refused to believe him, all the ways that you still don't trust him after decades of his faithfulness to you, despite all of your sin and mine, he still loves And it's one thing to recite this in Sunday school. It's one thing to know this as a theological truth. 
But it's another thing to personalize it, like Paul has done here. You see, the longer that you have been following Jesus, the more amazed you ought to be at the gospel. Because one of the gifts of an honest walk with the Lord over the years is that you begin to see just how little you have to offer. You know, sometimes when people come to faith, God frees them of some significant sins, and we praise God for that, right? And you're like, man, God freed me from X, Y, and Z. I'm like a saint now. I really don't struggle with this or with that that much or with that, so I guess I'm kind of fixed. That's great, God. Thank you. And then over the years, you begin to see how your words, your attitudes, your internal dialogue, how your motivation, how your identity is all tainted with the effects of sin. And then you begin to say, you still wanted me? You still love me? The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He points us again to the cross. And what this means for us is we seek as individuals, as a church, to get more of Jesus, more of the gospel, to go deeper into him. Is this. You don't need another conference to save your marriage. You don't need to just go to another men's retreat for that kick in the butt that you feel you need. You don't need another small group or another study or another church or another book. You know, God can use all of that, and he does. Of course he does. But lasting change comes from understanding and walking and living by faith in the Son of God who loved you, the Son of God who gave himself for you. You will never repent and turn from sin unless you were resting in what Jesus has done for you, unless you are walking by faith in that Son of God who loved you and who gave himself for you. You know, when here's an encouragement, actionable step for you. When you're reading your Bibles, when you're reading through the New Testament, look at how often the commands that we are given are anchored and flow out of even what Jesus has done for us. Husbands, Paul says, Love your wives as Christ has loved the church. He does not say, husbands, love your wives because, you know, happy wife, happy life and all that, right? Husbands, love your wives because it'll just make things easier. He says, no, husbands, you're never going to love your wife well until you understand what it looks like for Christ to love his bride. On and on and on and on, the imperatives... Do this, don't do that, that the Bible gives, are anchored in the gospel. So what you and I need is to walk by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. So let me ask you this. Is your heart hard? Is it a bit jaded in this season? Do you want to conquer sin? Do you lack passion? Do you want a better marriage? Do you want more patience in parenting? To be less stingy, to be more loving, more generous. Maybe everything in your life is going great and you simply want more. You want more of Christ. You want more of God's presence in your life. You want more of God's power in your life. 
Maybe you just want more holiness. Let your heart be captured again. This is not a lesson that you can learn once and then file away. This is a lesson that we need to learn afresh daily. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We do not move on from the gospel. We need daily reminders. That's why we sing. That's why in our kids' ministry, this is the same message that they teach. It's all Jesus. That's why our VBS, which was such a smashing success, centers on the good news of Jesus. And church, that is why we gather around the table. In just a moment, I'm going to invite the band to come out. The servers will come in just a moment. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Communion, the Eucharist, some people call it. It's an opportunity to be reminded afresh. I want you to hear me clearly. Communion is not an add-on to the service. It is not an afterthought. It is a gift given to us by our Lord. Where he sets a table, where he prepares the food and says to people like you and like me, come on up, pull up a seat. You are righteous in God's sight. I want to be with you. Maybe you're here and this is new for you and you have not yet trusted in Christ. If that's the case, I want to encourage you not to partake. Not yet. This is an opportunity for those of us who have trusted in Jesus to remember, to rejoice, to repent if needs be. Parents, I want to invite you to recognize your responsibility that if your child is here today to help them understand, to help them process what this is, to pray together. We're going to pass out the elements. I'm going to ask you to remain seated. The band will play a song. And as they play and as you pray, as you reflect, as you commemorate, as you repent, whatever you need to work through with the Lord, I want to invite you to do just that. As they pray, allow their words that are sung over you to give voice to your prayers, to give voice to your heart. That here at his table, we come again and are welcomed by the one who loved us and who gave himself for us. Servers, would you come? Thank you. And that does it for this episode of the Berean Podcast. All of our ministries at Berean are geared towards the mission of seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. If you would like to be connected with our church family or give to the mission of Berean, Just jump online to our website at Berean.com. 
mn.com. Thanks for listening today, and we pray that you are encouraged by today's episode. Be sure to like us on social media, and we'll see you here next time on the Berean Podcast.